0: Welcome back to In the Belly of the Beast. My name is Rai Sigilko, and I'm joined with Todd Lawrence, Kanishka Chowdhury,
1: Amy Finnegan.
0: And for this episode, I was thinking it would be great to have a conversation about Amy's recent opinion piece in MinPost on the construction of the Line 3 pipeline, a project of the Enbridge Corporation to ship crude oil from the tar sands of Alberta, Canada. superior wisconsin the pipeline is projected to span much of northern minnesota crossing the leech lake and fond du lac reservations and the 1855 1854 and 1842 treaty areas in the piece and i would really encourage our listeners to look for it and to read it amy you speak to your profound sense of grief over what you call the disregard for life That is evident in the construction of Line 3. You also connect the construction of the pipeline to the climate crisis, this summer's drought, the wildfires and smoke, and the chemical contamination from pipeline drilling. I think for me, what I was most moved by in your piece was its deeply personal dimension, your fears about your children's future, your sense of responsibility as a parent to both protect your children from dangers and anxieties about the world and its many problems, while also wanting to nurture them to tell the truth about destructive projects like Line 3, Of course, much like the community of water protectors that formed at Standing Rock in 2017 to protect the Cannonball and Missouri River from the Dakota Access Pipeline, Line 3 has become a critical site of ongoing indigenous struggles against destructive practices of settler colonialism and extractive capitalism. In June, the Anishinaabe organizer, writer, and really a critically important voice right now, Winona LaDuke, who lives on the White Earth Reservation, was arrested along with several others for trying to stop the pipeline from crossing the Shell River. Opposition to Line 3 has been fundamentally about the protection of water. Because, as was the refrain of Standing Rock, Minnie wakoni water is life. Amy, in your piece, you write, quote, As a mother, I know that my purpose is to protect and nurture the lives I birthed. Every day I try to protect my kids from the dangers in this world. I buckle them into car seats. I put on their bike helmets. I hold their hand when we are in crowds. I place them in the care of only trusted adults. I also desire to protect them from the scarier things that keep me up at night like what kind of a future they will inherit as an environmental catastrophe unfolds around us in this moment these worries are focused on the human induced harm being imposed by the construction of line three in minnesota and later on toward the end of the piece you write this unlike the water protectors who are sleeping at camp firelight in clearwater county I can't see or hear the searing sounds of the pipeline drill every day, 24 hours a day, though it is haunting me. It is easier to put it out of sight, out of mind, as I tuck my children into bed back in the Twin Cities. But as a mother, I teach my kids to tell the truth, to respect others and our Earth, to repair harm, and to speak up when something is not right. I know that I also must practice what I teach." It's a really beautiful piece, Amy, and it seems important for us to talk about it together. I wonder if we could begin by asking you, Amy, to speak a bit about the background to the piece, why you wrote it, the kinds of issues and questions that it raises, to speak more about the personal dimension and the political kinds of questions that you're asking right now.
1: Thanks, Rye. Just kind of hearing those words again just kind of brings me back there. And um, that grief is real. Um, A grief of loss and of devastation to life that I think is ongoing. Many folks have been paying attention and have been engaged in Line 3 work for years. The water protectors that have been really leading this Indigenous-led movement have been on this for seven years in Minnesota. And I feel like my activation on that has really been in the last year. So I'm kind of coming to the game late. I think for me, a couple of things I think are really compelling to me. Um, There's a lot of talk we've been talking and teaching about climate change as a concept and as a a process that's happening. And it can seem kind of abstract and, and out there. And I think for me, Mobilizing and organizing around line three has been something very tangible right here, right now. And it's like where I can take the rage and even the grief that I might feel about these issues and put it to something right now because people are people are working right now to oppose this pipeline. Another piece for me on why this is so compelling is that line three is very intersectional in terms of the issues that it brings together. The fight against Line 3 is about indigenous sovereignty. It's about fighting against corporate power and racial capitalism. It's also about pushing against the militarized police state, which is, I think, very connected to that racial capitalism piece. And it's also, of course, about climate and about lifting up a regard for life. The last thing I was going to say is I think another piece that's just been so moving for me in this is about how... um, The indigenous folks that have lead these these actions that I've been to, there's a lot of like invitation to ground ourselves and to really like literally. I can think about last week, uh, someone saying to us, "I want you to just close your eyes for a minute and think about like why you are here and what really matters." And I think that like constant invitation, that persistent invitation to really reflect on like big existential questions, is really inviting for me. And as part of what has compelled me to participate in in this movement. I think in terms of a couple other things, do you want me to just chat for a little bit about other thoughts that I'm having? I have a couple to maybe two other things that I wanna lift up. And one of them is I think when I when I look back at my piece like after it got out there, I was like, oh, I don't know if I really like spoke enough to the toxic and brutal violence. That is part of line three (laughs) and is part of the fight against it. Um, And well, actually, I think it's a part of the repression against the water protectors. And I'm thinking about, you know, the amount of money that has been funneled into law enforcement. I'm thinking about the regulatory capture of our public agencies like the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency and the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources who are succumbing to corporate interests. I'm talking about the violence of the arrests and the forces on bodies of over 800 water protectors. I'm talking about the rubber bullets. I'm talking about the searing sound of the drill beneath the rivers, beneath the wetlands, the spillage into the wetlands so that the water is no longer drinkable or safe to like play in and to be in. Like to me, that is all incredibly violent. I don't know if my piece lifted that up enough. I think what water protectors are pushing against is this brutality and this ugly and this, this visceral sort of toxicity. Nick Estes, who's someone that we have, um, historian, Dakota historian that, here, the four of us have read some of his work. Our history is the future. He wrote a lot about the No Dapple and Dakota Access Pipeline, but he has a piece in, in Jacobin in uh, 2019 where he's reflecting on this, and I just speak so much truth to me. He says, "We are quote rising against colonial and corporate extractive projects, but what's often downplayed is the revolutionary potency of what Indigenous resistance stands for." caretaking and creating just relations between human and non-human worlds on a planet thoroughly devastated by capitalism. And that is that is, I want to give a last snaps to that. That is truth. I think there's this this toxicity that we're pushing against, but there is something incredibly beautiful that is being built. And I think in my experience in in the camps up north in particular, you know, there's an invitation to share food. There's an invitation to, like, to, you don't need to be productive right now in the terms of producing work. Your job right now is to hold space. Your job is to share your story. Your job is to connect and build relationships. In July, a couple of days after the piece that I wrote, I, my whole family was up at the Shell River Camp, which is the river that Winona Leduc was arrested at in July. And I remember waking up in the morning, and it's just, it's a serene river. I mean, it's incredibly beautiful water that you can see the bottom of the river and you can see the the shells from the clams and, and we woke up and there's people doing art and there's people doing body work and there's people eating together. And it was like, wow, this is the vision. Like we are building something. We are, we are so, I was so honored to be in that space and like for my kids to see like the power of another vision of where, of how we could relate to one another built on care.
0: That's, that's wonderful. I mean, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about freedom as a place, right, and the creation of these kinds of spaces. And it's interesting to me how it's often within these times of crisis and catastrophe, when people come together, that beautiful things can emerge. I, I went to Standing Rock back in 2017, and I saw something very similar. I mean, it was something like the, the 10th largest city at the time, you know, the city of Standing Rock, the city that was built, there was a freedom, it was a f- place of freedom, it was, a, it was a freedom city. I mean, there was, you know, free health care, there was education for children, there was people working together, feeding one another. And when I got there, I was like, what, what should I do? And it was like, well, join in, you know, where's your place? And I spent most of the time washing dishes. And it was like, okay, we're creating a different kind of world here. You know, that, so there's, that's what I'm hearing, what you're saying is, is happening as well within this uh, context now of, of line three.
2: Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that really strikes me about what you were just saying, Amy, is that it's this combination of violence in its many forms, not just the direct hit from a baton, but the drill going into the earth, the water being contaminated, the food not being produced. And I think the combination of that violence juxtaposed against the, the wonderful acts of resistance, and we saw this even in our own city in the George Floyd Square, right? Suddenly there is this space where we show there is another way to live, that one does not have to interact with each other through this kind of metaphor of violence and, and uh, the state. So um, one thing I just want to say is that what has really struck me about this piece, but also what you subsequently just said, is, as you say, the ways in which so many different issues come to the surface here. And I would also add that one thing that helps me understand the present in the context of the long shadow of settler colonialism is to harken back to something one of the great scholars of settler colonialism, Patrick Wolfe, said, that he said, settler colonialism is not an event, it's a structure. And that in a sense that you have to think of line three as continuing this sort of whole history of dispossession. And we often think of exploitation in the classical, at least in the Marxist sense, of workers being exploited through their labor. But in the case of indigenous populations on this continent and on every continent, the actual Theft of land has had a profound influence not just on the way people live, but also on their relationship with what is so important to, to them in terms of livelihood, in terms of regeneration, in terms of all kinds of social life, right? So I think it's very important to see line three in that much larger context of dispossession. Because fundamentally, wh- why is Enbridge doing this? Enbridge is doing this, you know, the propaganda talk is about, oh, we're improving the line so that in fact the old line has become so bad that it'll cause pollution. The main reason is you can carry much more crude oil with this new line. It is about expansion. It is about profit. At the end of the day, that's all it is about. And, you know, I think what really is at stake here is also for us to redefine how we live on this planet. You know, the oil companies constantly tell us we provide what you need. It's not what we need. It's what you've made us need. You have created such an economy where fossil fuels are dominating our lives but we don't necessarily need to live like that so i'll just say one more thing and and pass on to todd and th- that is to say that there's a huge huge history and a very hopeful history of resistance to this stuff and i would ask you guys to remember Cochabamba in, in bolivia 20 years back where they beat back one of the biggest corporations in the world bechtel who was trying to privatize their water supply. Bechtel, I would remind you, is the same corporation that went on to Iraq and created havoc with their water supply system as well. And so this has been happening everywhere in the Philippines and in India, in Bangladesh, uh, you know, the privatization of water. So I think that what is very hopeful is this movement, Blockadia, which Naomi Klein talks about in her book, is water resistors are everywhere because we know how important this is. This is fundamental to people's lives. And even though it's been disheartening to see the state of Minnesota capitulate at every level to the demands of the corporation, it has been very heartening to see the people pushing back through direct action. What the state cannot do, we will have to do ourselves, right? And there's a longer conversation here about treaty rights and Article Six of the Constitution and all of that stuff, which I think... We don't have time to get into now, but I think that too is, is a conversation worth having is that what does it really mean to negotiate with a state that has historically, his work has been to oppress you? What does that even mean? Right? So so that's, again, something I'd like to leave for, for a later time.
3: Yeah, I don't, I've been sitting here listening to all that's been said and I have like a 100- hundred sort of response to things that I want to say, none of which are sort of very um, fully worked out in my mind. But I think, you know, the first thing, just thinking going back to the piece that Amy wrote and why I think I, along with all of us, found it so moving was this emphasis on, on that notion of care and protection and basically saying, thinking about other people and the earth and even culture Um, But the earth itself, right, in the same way that you might think about your children and the way that you treat them and the way that you try to make sure that they will have a good life and prepare them and all these sorts of things, right? And so I guess when I think about, you know, what's happening with line three, I think mostly about a connection with the earth and land, right, which has been disrupted, you know, historically and consistently in the case of indigenous people from the time that you know settlers arrived on this continent and so i i think i was wondering i actually want to ask amy a question i was thinking of the image that they used for the for the article in Men Post and it's like a picture of people indigenous folks and white bodied folks and you know, people from different backgrounds they're standing in water and i don't know if which river that is or what water source that is but they're standing in water and they're sort of praying or, or having some sort of kind of spiritual moment. And I wonder, I mean, what I thought was, you know, their feet are sort of firmly planted in the ground, but even in the water that they're trying to protect. And it's almost like they're a part of the river, like they're a part of that water. And I guess I was wondering if you felt a kind of, you know, going there, I mean, there are a lot of people against line three who don't actually go and protest there on the spot with the water protectors, right? You see a lot of bumper stickers. You see a lot of stuff like that down here in the city's yard signs. I don't think that all those people are going up there. There'll be a lot more people up there, and including myself, like this is no, uh, you know accusation or anything. But I wonder if when you go up and you participate in these actions, if you feel connected to that place, to that land, to the earth, in a way that you m- might not feel here, sort of in our everyday lives. And I don't want to like romanticize the, you know, this rural space or the Indian reservation or something like that. But through that connection with other people who are, you know, engaged in this act of protection and care, that's my question to you if it came across clearly.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Todd. Um, yes, <laughs> the answer is yes. I think um, I mean I've always been like an outdoors person, like I like camping and that kind of stuff. But I do think there's an invitation that I've had this summer to kind of Recognize my interconnections in the ecosystem and to appreciate like the breadth and the diversity of life all the way from like the insects that bite us (laughs) to the water itself. You know, it's a different cosmology than the one I was raised with to like think about water as alive and to appreciate that. And so, yes, I do think that that is part of what the invitation that people, you know, a lot of what the invitation water protectors and, and indigenous folks have been making this summer and before is like, come, come, come to the front lines. And I think part of it is because they want folks to feel the power of the community, of with human community, but also the relatives that are not humans with other forms of life. So I do think that, yes, I think that is definitely part of my experience. I was going to say when Winona LaDuke has a new book, like How to Be a Water Protector, I think it's called that just came out this year and she has like a whole chapter I just read about bugs (laughs) and it like did revolutionize the way I think about insects and how important they are and the appreciation for them. So I think there's also, I feel like that also connects just ideas of like, we're just a small piece of like a much bigger system. So there's like a humility piece to that, to like recognizing that, to recognizing the life around us and beyond human life and to not thinking of human life as supreme and dominant.
0: Well, it brings me back to that your line about disregard for life, right? I mean, what does it mean to regard life, right? To see life, to be attentive to life, to feel connected to it, right? I mean, yeah, I suppose that's the kind of relationality that I think Nick Estes talks about and that you're talking about and certainly something that I saw at Standing Rock. I mean, especially with this connection to water, there was this one experience that I, that I had and we were on the shore of the Cannonball River and this native woman, an elderly woman, had us all come into a, a circle. And I remember the, it was very muddy, and so our feet were actually sinking, and people actually had to help one another from sinking into the mud on the shore. But she went to the water, and she scooped up some water into a jar. And she had us pass the jar of water around and drink out of it. And of course, you know, you ask questions like, is this going to be safe? Is this, you know, can I just, am I going to get germs? And she wanted us, though, to taste the water, right? To know intimately what it is that we're here for, what we're here to protect, to be connected to it in some fundamental way. I mean, that was a really transformative experience being in that space for me to learn about my own disregard for so much of life, it's like yesterday I was outside and I began to see these beautiful flowers and bees and butterflies, and I thought to myself, "Why don't I ever notice these things? What am I doing all day long to not notice these things?" I get in my car.
3: I think I know what you. <laughs> I think. My, yeah, yeah you're, you. I mean, think about what we are doing every day: is you're working, you're scrambling, you're stressed, you're taking care of things, you're you're engaged in everything that's required of you, you know, by capitalism, right? I mean, like, I very much have been thinking about this, you know, just from what you said. That's why I asked that question, Amy, you know, because it seems like, again, like, I don't want to romanticize, you know, sort of like this particular way of being in the world, but there is a way that the kind of life that we live, that we, in one sense, choose, but in another sense, don't really choose, disconnects us from the thing that gives us life, right? And you know, I was thinking about, Kanishka was saying, what is Embridge arguing? You know, what's their real reason? It's because they want to move more crude oil. That's the ultimate goal. And if you were to ask them, like, why do you need to do this? They'll say something like, well, renewable fuels are all well and fine, but we need something to rely on before we get to that point, right? If that were, is true, the reason that's true is because we won't stop. We won't stop and change the lives that we're living. And it's a way of kicking the can down the road, right? Of delaying either, you know, sort of putting off a change that could save us all or of sort of embracing our own destruction, right? You know, so, I mean, I think like our inability to see the earth, the what? I mean, the freaking river runs right through the middle of our city, Mm -hmm. right? But how many people really see it as a life-giving thing? We see it as a thing that's just like you cross over a bridge or, you use it for transportation or, you know, some people dumping things. I mean, you know, it's, it's just like, whatever, I'm going across town, right? So that seems to be the thing that's missing for so many of us in our lives. We, if we saw our lives that way, if we saw ourselves, if you saw the flowers, all the things that you're talking about, Rai, we might live differently, right? But we don't. I think the uh, Rai put his
2: finger on why we call this podcast from the belly of the beast, right? I mean, in a sense, the reason we don't see it is because we are in the belly of the beast. I mean, just look at all of us sitting here in this room with the objects that are in this room. We have phones, we have laptops, we have equipment. And if I wanna bring this back to the topic on hand here, producing each one of these items have taken hundreds of gallons of water. The clothes we're wearing, the equipment we're using, the chips, the batteries in our phones. And this is at the same time that the average distance a child or a woman in Asia or Africa walks to get water is between three and a half to four miles. That's the average distance, okay? So when we talk about the flowers and the bees, it's not just about that we're alienated from nature and its life forms. We're alienated from how incredibly implicated all of us are in this global system of capitalism, right? I'm sitting here with a laptop in front of me, which would provide you know, rewashing the chip from this would provide enough water for a family to live on for days. Right? But the thing is we're not aware of this or we've been it's been normalized to such an extent that, you know, we have to go stand in the water or have water being you know, to to reconnect in a way that shouldn't be necessary. But that is that is what it means to be in the belly of the beast. So yeah, I, I mean I it's just a very rich conversation because I think, you know, I, I hear things and then it provokes other kinds of ideas.
0: I just wanted to say one thing about. Uh, I have a quote here from an address delivered in July of 2015 by Pope Francis, and he was in Bolivia on a visit there. And uh, this address was in San- delivered in Santa Cruz de la Sierra. This is what he says Let's not be afraid to say it. We need change, we want change. In your letters and in our meetings, here he's talking about the people of Bolivia, you have mentioned the many forms of exclusion and injustice which you experience in the workplace and neighborhoods and throughout the land. They are many and diverse, just as many and diverse are the ways in which you confront them. Yet there is an invisible thread joining every one of the forms of exclusion. These are not isolated issues. Can we recognize that invisible thread which links them? I wonder whether we can see that those destructive realities are part of a system which has become global. Do we realize that the system has imposed the mentality of profit at any price with no concern for social exclusion or the destruction of nature? If such is the case, I would insist, let us not be afraid to say it. We want change, real change, structural change. This system is by now intolerable. Farm workers find it intolerable, laborers find it intolerable, communities find it intolerable, peoples find it intolerable, the earth itself, our sister, mother earth, as St. Francis would say, also finds it intolerable. He compares this then, this death and destruction of the earth to what the early church theologian, church father Basil of Caesarea calls the dung of the devil. In this system, he says the service of the common good is left behind. Once capital becomes an idol and guides people's decisions, once greed for money presides over the entire socioeconomic system, it ruins society. It condemns and enslaves men and women. It destroys human fraternity. It sets people against one another, and as we clearly see, it even puts at risk our common home, sister and mother earth. This is Pope Francis speaking of Bolivia. This, this has to do with, with questions of faith, of commitment. For Catholics to follow the Pope means to say no to these things, to act against them, right? To be committed to life. I was just really struck by that. I wanted to share it.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Um, I, I was gonna, I'll add one other thought, which was um, you had asked me earlier too, like what questions I sit with still. And it speaks to, Kanishka, you were talking about like how we're all implicated in this, in these systems of oppression. So Tuck and Yang wrote this seminal piece, decolonization is not a metaphor. And they say settler colonialism and its decolonization implicates and unsettles everyone. I think that that is something that I, that's like sits with me. Like I'm implicated in settler colonial projects. I'm implicated in the capitalist project. That is part of why we see this pipeline coming through and it's, it's very unsettling to, to kind of like let that sit there. It like makes me feel like a rumble. And I know like this summer I felt like a rumble inside me. I, I think the gravity and the grief of the implication of this system is really intense. And I also know that to sit with that energy only is not generative. To go through life just settled on the grief And the freneticness of the toxic (laughs) implication of what I'm part of is not helpful. I can't raise children. I can't be part of a community. I can't make music. I can't teach like in that space. So it's like, how do we how do we settle ourselves, our bodies, so that we can be generative, but also recognize the unsettling realities of being implicated in these systems. So I, I sit with that. That's a tension for me. I do think to speak back to your point, Todd, about like when you're asking, like, those people are in the water. And I do think there's a life force that when we really connect with the earth, with water, with natural pieces, I do think that that can also give us some energy that can help perhaps settle us in generative ways. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, clearly there's a connection between our disconnection from the earth and our inability to recognize the kind of violence that's happening right now with the construction of this pipeline. If we were more connected to the earth... Mm -hmm. Right. If we were more connected to the water, if we were more connected to the things around us, if we weren't so alienated from it, yeah. we would all be out there stopping it. Right. Yeah. So I mean, there's this. this is kind of the. This is the question. This question of what does it mean to have a regard for life, and and how do we how do we live into what you're talking about? I guess you know where we we're standing in the water together, where we're in touch with our surroundings. Right. And given the kind of world we live in it becomes difficult to find spaces to do that, to find time to do that, right? Because time is always running out. We always have other things to do. They're always, you have to work. You have to pay the bills. You have to.
3: Yeah, I think I just want to add one final thing because I think we're getting close to the end. Um, I love everything that you guys have been saying and this is really resonating with me and I also want to throw in, I mean, I just think that all people who have been, uh, let's say, have had land taken from them, have been disconnected from their places, have been the victims of extractive, you know, sort of actions. And we should be joining together, right? I see, you know, I was talking with someone the other day about the connections between the taking of land from indigenous people and the taking of land from black people, for example. And then I think I was talking to Kanishka the other day. I was talking about baseball and I was talking about Dodger Stadium and how Dodger Stadium is built on a Latinx community where all the people were kicked out in order to build a stadium, right? like This happens all over our country and, as Kanishka was you know, sort of saying, all over the world, really, right? That people are moved, they're disconnected from the land in these violent and forcible ways. And we should see the action at Line 3, against Line 3, as a kind of part of a global movement to not just reconnect to the land but to understand our relationship to the land and to think about the ways that the system wants to disconnect us and take the land away from us like if we have a kind of ownership or a kinship with the land you know even so much that we can't even see the places or recognize the places that used to be ours and i think this is this is really important and so many of the movements that i have you know written about or been a part of or have witnessed have been about, you know, I I think of urban farmers in North Minneapolis putting your hands in the soil. Black people who felt like this is a tradition that I'm regaining, relearning a, a relationship with the earth as a productive kind of thing where we grow things. Right. Or, you know, the people that I've worked with in southeast Missouri whose town was destroyed. And then, you know, Deborah, this person who is being sort of given this land back saying, I want my feet to be in the ground. I want to be connected to the place where I was born, right? And then the people that Amy, you know, the picture of her article of people with their feet in the water made me think about all these things and that there should be more of a connection, a kind of solidarity between all these different people who have been dispossessed by settler colonialism and its its ongoing effects, right?
0: And this is, this is why, right, any kind of resolution, any kind of solution, right, to the problems that we face right now must emerge from indigenous voices, right? Must emerge from figures like Winona Leduc, must emerge from the wisdom of black farmers, must emerge from precisely those sites of dispossession, people that, you know, have developed a, a, a wisdom tradition, you might say a radical forms of wisdom tradition right that that can articulate the kinds of solutions that we need as opposed to the kind of more kind of technological solutions that we're we're seeing already you know emerge, whether that's going up to Mars or whether that's you know extracting more minerals and and uh, from from the ocean floor right or like the other kinds of kind of techno attempts to solve as if. The issues that we face can be solved by the same system that created them. That's not where we're going to learn. That's not how we're going to move forward. That's not how we're going to repair the earth and repair social relations.
2: I think if you, uh, one positive aspect of the militarization of the police and the the real brutality of the way uh, warriors have been met, and even this uh, on Sunday when people marched to the governor's mansion, 70 people were arrested. I mean, I think there is a real fear on the part of the state that this is a viable movement and that there is, this is democracy in action. People are willing to protect their lives, protect the land. And I think that if there's anything good that comes out of seeing this kind of reaction from the state, they're scared. I think they know that there is potentially there's power here and there is not just a radical tradition that people are drawing from, but looking into the future with some degree of hope. So I am, you know, in the midst of this kind of um, sort of beating up that's going on uh, by the state, I'm I'm extremely hopeful for for the future.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to In the Belly of the Beast.